This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. World Rare Disease Day is marked on the last day of February by rare disease patient advocates across the globe as a way to raise awareness. This year, the focus of the day will be on research. In recognition of that, we spoke to Ann Pariser, Deputy Director of the Office of Rare Diseases Research at the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Pariser discussed the changing role of patients in research, efforts to accelerate translational science, and what her office will be doing on World Rare Disease Day. And thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me. We're going to talk about the Office of Rare Disease Research at the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, the state of rare disease research, and what patients can do to accelerate the process of discovering and developing treatments. For listeners not familiar with the Office of Rare Disease Research, can you explain what it is, what it does, and, and how it works? Uh, sure. So, um, Office of Rare Diseases Research, or, or ORDR, um, it, it was established uh, about a little bit more than 30 years ago. Um, it actually came around um, shortly after the passage of the Orphan Drug Act um, and um, shortly after the Office of Orphan Products was established at, at FDA. And uh, it was really uh, in the spirit of... Um, trying to help build a research agenda for rare diseases um, to go along with the incentives that were being offered through the Orphan Drug Act. Um, so our mission is to accelerate the development of rare disease therapeutic benefit patients. And we do this um, uh, largely through um, supporting and, uh, and facilitating collaborations, uh, funding research, Supporting translational science and also building networks to try to move uh, discoveries from basic science or translational science through to the clinic as efficiently as possible. Uh, one of our largest programs is the Rare Diseases Clinical Research Network. This is a, a program that was started um, more than 15 years ago. And um, what that does is it provides uh, collaborative awards to um, to consortia that will work on um, research into uh, rare disorders. Um, it actually does this in a very uh, collaborative and unique way is um, the consortia uh, apply by um, pulling together uh, related disorders, uh, uh, three diseases or something that has a common mechanism such as um, rare lung disorders or um, uh, rare lysosomal disorders, so that um, the, these uh, uh, 
researchers and the disease experts can can work together and try to share knowledge for our diseases, a lot of them would start out being very poorly understood. Uh, so that's our largest program, and um, that's actually in its third cycle, uh, award cycle, and um, it's due to be recompeted again um, uh, in 2019. <clears throat> um, we also have... Uh, an information center. This is an online resource. It's called the Genetics and Rare Diseases Information Center, or GARD, and that's also about 15 years old, and uh, that was started uh, to try to provide um, good quality, accessible information, primarily targeted toward um, patients, families, and, and to the public, but um, really anybody can use it. Uh, we, we also have um, physicians and, and scientists accessing uh, our website for, for their information. We also do things like sponsor conferences, um, scientific conferences. Uh, we support a few bench-to-bedside uh, grants here at NIH for uh, researchers doing uh, clinical research. And um, we have a few other programs um, uh, primarily uh, targeted towards uh, helping uh, patients and researchers move their, their rare disease research agendas forward. You joined the Office of Rare Disease Research a little more than a year ago. You've been at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration since 2000, working largely in the area of rare disease there. What led you to take this job? Um, well, actually, when I was over at FDA, uh, we worked very closely with um, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, or, or NCATS. Um, NCATS has the Office of Rare Diseases Research, and it also has the Therapeutics for Rare and Neglected Diseases Program, or TREND. And uh, we had a lot in common. Um, and it was, if you look at um, research as along a continuum, um, we would uh, frequently come together to um, either try to improve communication between the two agencies or um, to help uh, bring the research forward on either end. So um, when I was at FDA, uh, you sometimes felt that uh, people were, were um, that we, we had a chance to work with people a little bit sooner. So this is why the opportunity here at NCATS has, has um, really been, been great. We have a chance to um, come in a little earlier. NIH tends to come into the uh, research spectrum a little earlier than FDA, so helping to build uh, the, the clinical programs such as um, uh, the networks uh, through the RDCRN, which I just um, spoke about, or um, helping patient groups set up things like registries or get the information they need, um, it, you know, it's a, it presented a real opportunity, and, and this this uh, work actually helps um, to support applications that we hope would eventually work their way to FDA. Moving from regulatory science to translational science, does, has that changed your perspective on rare disease at all and the challenges faced in developing therapeutics to, to combat them? Well, it's actually, it's, it's quite similar. You know, research uh, goes along a continuum with um, NIH, as, as I just mentioned, coming in a little bit earlier than FDA or, or tends to. So um, we certainly had a, a chance at, at FDA to see um, all phases along uh, the research spectrum. But uh, I think what's so unique about ORDR is really the chance to come in very early in the process and to try to shepherd things along and, and try to put efficiency into the process. Um, 
so um, you know rare diseases study is is very limited we, there aren't a lot of patients uh, you don't often get uh, a lot of clinical trials because of that so it's it's so important to focus and to try to get it right, right out of the gate. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, just having the opportunity now to, to try to be able to intervene a little bit earlier and to join hands across the divide with the FDA has, has really been, really been wonderful. We hear a lot about patient voice these days. The regulators, the researchers, the drug developers are taking patients' role much more seriously. I think rare disease has really led in this area. What role do you think patients are playing in terms of things like natural histories, registries, biorepositories, and, and why do those things matter, particularly for rare disease research? Um, well, patients, I think, in rare diseases have, have always had leadership roles. Um, rare disease uh, um, research um, has often been started by the patients themselves or, or often by parents, um, often because there really wasn't anything going on. So um, they've um, worked really uh, throughout research to, to try to bring these things forward. And, and um, I think that involvement, is, if anything, it's getting, it's getting larger. Um, and if you look at some of the We'll call them the the oldest disease organizations. A lot of those were were started by parents. I mean, for example, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was started in the fifties by parents, and, and they've um, just really advanced the research agenda just tremendously. Um, so you mentioned uh, specifically natural history studies and registries and biorepositories. Um, I mean, these are often patient-led efforts or certainly patient-supported efforts, uh, and we really need these for diseases. So, um, um, as you know, there are about six or 7,000 rare diseases, and uh, with advances in science and the unraveling of the genome, there may actually be more than that, and most of these are, are poorly understood, and there's small numbers of patients with the individual disorders. There's a great need to try to understand these diseases better. So, a, a place to start with that is often um, a natural history study where you're trying to understand the disease itself, the full spectrum of the disease trying to find patients with, with these disorders. And uh, how research often starts is uh, you may have um, one parent or a, a few parents or patients, and they may have received a, a diagnosis of um, a rare disease that they may not have heard of before this. So what, what we hear often from people is the first thing they'll do is they'll go to the Internet and they'll start searching for information about the disease. And what that often leads them to is is finding other people in a similar situation. And if there isn't an advocacy group uh, available, what they tend to do is, is start one. They'll, they'll join with other parents or other patients. They'll start developing registries, um, often to share um, information or often just to communicate and to start building a community. And we've often found that that's a, a first place where rare disease research starts, and then they can, they can grow from there. But you can't um, do... Natural history studies or registries or biorepositories if you don't have the involvement with, of the patients and the, and the community. These are often large long-term efforts. Uh, they can be time-consuming. So the most successful ones you see, um, a close collaboration between the, the patients and um, researchers. 
and, and sometimes industry uh, trying to uh, build and maintain these registries that really give a lot of information and then helps uh, to, re- to build a research program there. In the world of rare disease research, patients are, are also playing an active role in, in funding research and bringing together researchers with diverse expertise. How big an impact is this having on reshaping discovery and development? Uh, well, I think it plays a very big role. As, as, I, as I mentioned, um, really, it, it's very hard to have rare disease research without involvement of the patients, and often they are they uh, take on leadership roles. I mean, fundraising, of course, is important. It takes money to do research, but um, also patients um, can add uh, to um, describing the disease uh, through uh, natural history studies. Um, they can also help with um, developing endpoints or outcome measures for clinical trials. Uh, we've seen that a lot. Um, and um, it, patients are, are often, um, often through advocacy groups, are the bridge between the scientific community and, and the patient community. They often share information. Uh, they help with recruitment. Um, and they can also comment on clinical trial designs, things that are feasible, things that can uh, help um, a trial get run, enrolled, patients to stay with to stay with studies, and, um, you know, providing a lot of feedback. Uh, that has also been, been very, very useful. And um, one thing that we've also heard a lot of is um, from the research community how important it is for them to interact with uh, patients with the disease and uh, maybe particularly people working in a lab may not have uh, as much opportunity to interact with in the clinical arena. Uh, we've, we've heard from people uh, say how just um, transformative that's been for them to to actually meet patients and, and see the people that they're helping and to develop relationships with them. It, it, it's very motivating. In the world of rare disease, collaboration has really playing a critical role. You mentioned the collaborative grant programs you run. I'm wondering if you're seeing a, a cultural shift of sorts as, as researchers are often asked to work in new ways across institutions, uh, across disciplines. Are, are you seeing this changing the rare disease world in a broader way to, to bring about change in the way research in general is being conducted? Uh, yes, I, I think that's that's absolutely true, and I, I think uh, rare diseases have really been a leader in this area. Um, again, with the advances in, in science, particularly genomic analysis, we're starting to see a lot of common diseases being split into uh, smaller and smaller disease areas, um, perhaps based on a, a mutation like in, in cancer or uh, it really turns out that things have been clustered perhaps as a larger sy- syndrome, maybe many diseases uh, put together. And so even the common diseases now are being split into um, smaller and smaller populations. So um, that requires a lot of the techniques that have been developed for rare disease research, you know, building communities, describing uh, cohorts of patients, depending on um individual characteristics or group characteristics. So then you get smaller populations, smaller trials. You have to adopt these efficiencies that we've been using in in the rare disease world. Um, So I think that that's absolutely true. And collaboration here is just really critical. I mean, there's a a limit to to study. You, You 
have small numbers of patients, but I think also as we're seeing with these um, scientific advances, uh, our expectation is the therapies are going to be more efficacious. You're you're narrowing your population based on a target. Hopefully, that means uh, um, uh, better uh, interventions and but also you're limiting the pool of, of people. So describing that um, the disease and its natural history and um, better planning for what you know is going to be a, a limited uh, field of study. I, I think uh, rare diseases have, have really um, shown a light on how to do that. You've long been involved in efforts to accelerate rare disease drug research. You founded the FDA's Rare Disease Drug Program, which sought to accelerate the development of therapeutics for rare diseases. Many rare disease patients face a, a reality that their disease are just moving faster than the drug development process. What can patients do to accelerate drug development? Well, uh, patients can do a lot. Um, they um, can participate in, in research uh, as some of the things I've mentioned, but I think, again, in critical importance here, and it's impossible to overstate this, these, these registries and natural history studies. So we have um, patients who are identified, the disease is characterized, so that when a therapy does come along, um, then then you're ready to go. And the better you understand the disease, the easier it is to, to design an appropriate trial, a, a trial that's likely to be able to define the effects of intervention and also to have endpoints uh, developed so those two are, are, are ready to go. Um, but patients do a lot of other things, um, you know, and informing the, the community um, about research that's going on, uh, these critical in interactions with, with researchers. We've had uh, patients and parents who have um, developed their own um, uh, research programs or, or Certainly, advocacy groups that are also um, they'll in engage uh, fellows or pay for trainees. They'll um, they'll uh, pay for or or uh, organize scientific meetings, which are often a, 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 again a way to start a research program and try to bring the community together. With patient groups, really take leadership there. There are uh, parents who are. Developing um, social media sites, for example, to um, try to um, uh, mine data that is already available, um, such as uh, through some of the blogs or chat boards. Can they try to help define the disease that way or to um, help bring the community together that way? We've had um, uh, one parent um, who you may have heard of, uh, Matt Mite, who is actually, um, he's a PhD computer scientist, and he um, is now at the University of Alabama um, helping people to uh, characterize their disease and use uh, computer-assisted learning to try to, um, to, uh, to help move diagnosis forward. Um, patients actually go out in the community. They educate uh, doctors, um, uh, clinicians, and, and other health professionals um, into the disease. Uh, just, uh, I think patients have just um, tremendous leadership in, in trying to accelerate um, rare diseases generally. Uh, we're coming up on World Rare Disease Day, which is held every February 28th or 29th of its leap year. What are you going to be doing this World Rare Disease Day? 
Uh, well, every year, or for the past, I think about eight years, I think this is the eighth year, um, there's uh, Rare Disease Day at NIH. So this year, uh, Rare Disease Day is on February 28th, and Rare Disease Day at NIH will be on March 1st. Um, so this is an all-day event. It's held here at the, the clinical center in the auditorium, and uh, we open our doors, and uh, we have various topics on rare disease research and, and science. Um, to engage with and to um, help uh, educate and have a dialogue with the community. So um, we actually have a website. If anybody would like to join us, uh, we, we would just uh, love for people to come in person or it's also webcast. Last year we had over 700 people in person and I think about the same on the web. Um, so we're hoping to get at least that many people again this year. We've seen growing attention paid to rare diseases, new tools, new breakthrough therapies. Where do you see the roadblocks remaining today? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly the science uh, for many diseases I think is really advanced to the, the point now where where we can really start start thinking of efficacious therapies for many of the disorders. Uh, one big challenge has been diagnosis. Um, it's so common it's described as a diagnostic odyssey that you know people can take years to get a diagnosis so there's a number of efforts in place trying to accelerate that trying to get people diagnosed faster so that we can then uh, move on to um, identifying care and therapies for people so that that remains a big challenge um, and um, with 7,000 or so diseases only only about five percent of them have a have an approved therapy by the FDA, and um, maybe another 5% after that have any research going on. So, I mean, there's a great need here, and there are just, at the current time, I think insufficient resources uh, targeted in that direction. There's also a need to, to chain, train the next generation. Um, I think that the rate of discovery is going so fast. Um, genomic analysis, again, has just opened the doors to... A lot of diseases, we, we didn't really understand them even a few years ago, and, and that's really opened the door. So there's a great need of people to be able to do that kind of analysis, but also genetic counseling once there is a diagnosis. Um, and uh, data, big data, medium-sized data, data standards, data sharing, these are all things that uh, I think are going maybe a little too slow compared to the, the pace of science and, and to the needs. So these are all things we're, we're trying to focus on and, and to try to work with the community to try to develop. As you look ahead, what opportunities for the Office of Rare Disease Research do you, do you see over the next year? What will you be working on it, and where do you see it having the biggest impact? Well, I, I think one program of ours that has just done um, really well and done an awful lot of Good and that that we we would um, that we really think is doing good work for rare diseases is our rare disease clinical research network or the RDCRN. So um, through that network, uh, we've studied more than 200 different rare diseases, and the progress that's been made in in some of these consortia has, has really just been incredible. We have, we have some where uh, we have therapies that are in clinical testing right now. Some have had uh, have participated in getting drugs. Approved others um, very deliberately moving towards the clinic. Uh, so those are five-year awards, and uh, then it's up for renewal, um, which will be um, uh, 
we published a notice of intent to publish a funding opportunity announcement um, in September, which said that the funding opportunity announcement should be published somewhere around March of this year. So we would really urge people to take a look at that and uh, consider putting together a consortium. Uh, we also, in September, we launched um, uh, an online resource called the uh, NCATS uh, Toolkit for Patient-Focused Drug Development. Um, this um, was actually something that was we started at the recommendation of the patient community themselves. Um, uh, as, as you know, a lot of rare disease research is started by patient groups and it's continued by patient groups. So we had some of the more experienced groups come to us and say, you know, when I started out, I really would have liked to have this information available. Um, we learned, but it took a really long time. So wouldn't it be great if there were some resource available to people who are starting out so that they would know where to go, they would know how to put a research program together, they would know what they needed to, to work on. So we actually worked with the patient community for about two years to pull this together, and that launched in September. So um, we would like to continue building that out, and we would really like this to be a very useful um, resource for patients. So we're looking for feedback and for more tools and, and for ways that that can be improved. And then we just recently uh, launched a companion site to that. It's called Radar. Um, this grew out of what used to be called the GRDR, or Global Registries Project, where we're trying to provide advice, um, again, and tools to patient groups so they can start or improve registries or build natural history studies. So we've um, just started working on that, but uh, we, we are hoping in the next uh, six months to a year to really try to give some actionable advice. And Pariser. Deputy Director of the Office of Rare Disease Research. And thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you so much for, for speaking with me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.